0: The history of boy bands goes back much farther than you might realize. Though the term wasn't formally coined until the 1980s, the origins of the actual concept of a handful of guys singing together and making girls swoon goes way back to the barbershop quartets of the late 1800s. Since the term boy band entered the lexicon, various other groups have been retroactively referred to as such including what is often considered as the greatest boy band of all time, the Beatles. Boy bands have been a force ever since the Beatles took the stage at the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. Now, there's no question that the late 80s and 90s were something of a golden age for boy bands. We got new kids on the block. Okay, any list of boy bands of the 90s needs to start with the late 80s, that is, NKO TV. Then we got the Backstreet Boys, originally formed in Orlando in 1993. Uh, they released their self titled album three years later. Then we've got Boys to Men. They rose to fame in the 90s. This Philly based harmony group signed to Motown Records, and their 1992 single, Into the Road, achieved a record staying on the Billboard Hot 100 charts for 13 weeks, which was later outdone by their next two singles. And then finally, NSYNC. The name Insync was created by using the last letter of each member's first name. Okay, so we have Justin, Chris, Joey, Lanston, and JC. Okay, wait, Lanston? What kind of name is Lanston? Well, it's, it's made up. The actual name of the band member in question is, of course, Lance Bass, who wasn't a part of the original lineup. And he replaced a guy named Jason, okay, that's where we get that second N, early on in the band's life. Uh, But since everyone kind of already loved the name NSYNC, they gave Lance the nickname Lanston so that the name could still work. Now, you might be thinking, why are we, as a historic Christian church, founded on the incarnation and the resurrection of the Son of God, talking about boy bands on a Sunday morning? If you're thinking that, okay, first of all, relax. It's okay to have a bit of a fun at church. Uh, but 90s boy bands, they're just a fun way to help us remember the point of this series. And the point of this series is this, Galatians 5, verses 24 through 26. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That is our heart as we begin 2024. Let's keep in step or in sync with God's Spirit. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to explore what it means to be in rhythm with the Spirit of God. And as much as boy bands aren't really ever taken seriously, They've gotta be on the same page, okay? Look at, check out this video right here. Look at some of those moves. It takes coordination, it takes practice, it takes teamwork. Now, I know this from experience. I was never in a boy band, okay? Though there are a couple people in our church who were. But my senior year of high school, we had a talent show, and my friends and I performed a medley of InSync's God Must Have Spent a Little More Time on You, as well as new kids on the blocks, the right stuff, okay? I've got a clip of it, but bear with me, okay? This is from 1999, it's definitely not in HD. The guy who did the backflip there, he goes to prodigal church. He cannot do a backflip anymore. Also, he's bald like me. One of the guys has five kids. One of the guys has four kids. And then the guy on the far right, he does my insurance. We are so old. Okay, Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? It means being unselfish. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, argues the existence of God for several chapters, yet he does not use the Bible or Jesus in doing so. He eventually gets there, but not at first. At first, he lays out what Christian apologetics call the moral argument. And what he says is that every human throughout all history Uh, They've had this innate sense of right and wrong. And that impulse can be summarized in a statement, men ought not be selfish. Selfishness has never been celebrated in any culture at any time. He writes this, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle or where a man felt proud of double crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two make five. Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. C.S. Lewis then asked the question, where does that come from? And he likens it to a home and sometimes we have to go to the wooden frame or even to the very foundation to discover the builder's signature and he says that unselfishness that that unselfishness that is held in such esteem by every society in every human culture and history is the very signature of our creator i think he's right unselfishness is how we stay in sync with God's spirit. Uh, My family and I, we had a great Christmas and New Year's and our kids are ages six and 10. And those are pretty good ages to understand that Christmas isn't all about getting what you want, getting presents. But when our kids were little, they were selfish. Toddlers are selfish, newborns even more so. Toddlers though, it's all about them. Now, there are many creeds throughout church history that have been really formational in our world. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, but one creed that has influenced our church, the church as a whole, more than others is the toddler's creed. See if you can relate. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, It's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else no matter what. If we are building something together, all pieces are mine. And if it looks like mine, it's mine. Robert J. Ringer wrote a book called Looking Out for Number One, and it was a best-selling book in America for 46 weeks. I wonder how well a book called Looking Out for Number Two would do. The selfishness acted out by our toddlers, our young ones also reveals the selfishness that is still within you and I. Innate to the human experience is the desire to be selfish, to look out for number one. But there's hope because there is also something deep planted within ourselves that moves us beyond our selfish ways, and that is called love. It often goes like this for many Christians we can all start by admitting that when we were a baby we were pretty selfish we didn't care whose ear we screamed in whose lap you pooped on whose shoulder you threw up on or whose sleep you interrupted for the ninth time in one night your hunger your thirst your comfort your relief it was all that mattered to you i want what i want when i want it and that was your motto even before you had words to articulate it And God's job, generally carried out by your parents, was to come when you called, clean up your messes, satisfy your demands, kiss your scrapes and bruises, and keep you as happy as possible, as much as possible. And as you grew from infancy into toddlerhood, you were still pretty selfish, but occasionally you felt a generous impulse tingling your soul. For example, one day, one of your parents was feeding you Cheerios, Okay, the perfect toddler food in my opinion. And you took a few gooey Cheerios out of your mouth and you offered them back in a slobbery fist to your parent. Your parent realized you were imitating a generous gesture. You were doing for one another what had been done for you. And your parent received that sticky gift like the holy and sacred wafer it was. A few days later you realized that you could make your siblings laugh by making a farting sound with your mouth. Okay? And then you enjoyed making them laugh, and so you repeated the sound as long as the laughter and the joy continued. In these episodes, you were discovering a toddler's version of the joy of generosity and unselfishness. God's job was still to clean up your messes and satisfy your demands. But God also had the tough job of calling you beyond yourself to be selfless. Do you see how the stages of life relates to the stages of faith? We have all been selfish. God, help me. I need this. Give me that. I want what I want what I want. Then we see that life isn't just about me. We have these moments of generosity of unselfishness. We give to a great cause. We donate presents to kids in our community. We help a struggling neighbor. There's this pushing of the spirit of moving us away from life being only about you. Where are you at now in this stage of faith? Are you stuck in the place where God is supposed to give you everything you want all the time? Or are you being moved to unselfishness? Our scripture for this morning comes from the greatest sermon ever spoken, the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We're going to read and start at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here in the teachings of Jesus, we find a phrase that has found its way into the English lexicon, English slang, going the extra mile. I let my friend borrow my car for a few days. He brought it back and filled the tank, and he even went the extra mile, and he had it cleaned and waxed as well. I took my wife out for a fancy meal at McDonald's last night, and I went the extra mile by letting her supersize it. Normal cinnamon rolls have a good amount of icing on them, but when the Eggebrotten family makes cinnamon rolls during the holiday season, they go the extra mile and ensure that every single bite has plenty of icing on it. Now, I know this from personal experience because during Christmas break, I ate nine of their cinnamon rolls in two and a half days. And the expression going the extra mile, it's rooted in the teachings of Jesus. And so is the point of Jesus uh, go above and beyond? Well, kind of, but it's more than that. And so to fully answer this question, we've gotta go back to first century Palestine, the context in which Jesus spoke these words. Jesus taught this against the backdrop of Roman oppression. To get a sense of context, imagine what it would be like if the Nazis had won World War II and were now occupying in your country. Uh, They were exerting dominance through regular, graphic, public executions, high taxation, and ongoing insult. This is what it was like to be a Jew during the time of Jesus. Israel was a conquered and oppressed nation, and Jewish people lived every day uh, with a foreign military presence all around them that reminded them that they were powerless. And when Jesus said, love your enemies, his audience didn't never have to wonder who he was talking about. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount wasn't theoretical religious philosophy. No, it was a real world love ethic in a real world hate context. According to Roman law, Roman soldiers were allowed to compel any conquered citizen to carry their gear for them one mile. And to prevent complete abuse of their power, Roman military law also demanded that at the end of that mile, the soldier needed to release the citizen and choose another citizen to go the next mile. The Roman mile was a thousand paces or 1,500 yards, a little shorter than the English mile. Imagine leaving your home one afternoon to run an errand, perhaps to go to the local market, and seeing a Roman soldier walking nearby, you'd probably walk in the opposite direction or just try to not make eye contact with him. You'd hope he didn't call you because you could be forced to carry his heavy gear one mile out of your way. Or imagine just being a passerby on the street and witnessing this. There stood a Roman soldier barking orders at a young Jewish man. Hey Jew, carry my pack. You you watch and you listen as this Jew pleaded with the soldier. But sir, I'm on my way to work. My business must be open before the early morning. I don't have time to carry your pack and you're going in the opposite direction. The soldier drew his sword and repeated his orders. Hey Jew, carry my gear. So finally the Jew huffed and puffed, frowned, but eventually obeyed his orders. Now, it's easy to lose the magnitude of going the extra mile. Imagine you yourself have been pressed into submission and forced to carry the soldier's gear. The shield alone was 22 pounds. If you were a Jesus follower and you walk alongside your enemy, you're under the burden of his weapons of war but you begin to take time to remind yourself and meditate on the reality of who this soldier really is. He is a man made in the image of God and is infinitely precious to his creator. This Roman's race, religion, and role that he now plays as your oppressor fade into obscurity compared to the love that you know God has for him. Here is a man who has been victimized since childhood by the lies of an oppressive state, a system that taught him wrong was right, that hate was justified and that violence was godly. Yes, you are at war, but not with him. You are at war with the bad ideas that have put you both into this situation. And so at the end of that mile, the Roman centurion releases you from your obligation and begins to look for another person to press into his service. But you change the power dynamic through unselfishness. You change the power dynamic through love. You don't drop his gear but instead you offer to keep walking with him. And at first he's confused. The experience is beyond his paradigm for understanding life, but not wanting to get into an argument with a person who is seemingly trying to be helpful. He he just has no category for it. He accepts your offer and you go again. Now, everything's changed for you and for him. For you, the first mile was oppression, the second mile, freedom. While the first mile was compulsion, the second mile, volition. While the first mile was an expression of systemic hate, the second mile is a revelation of reconciling love. While the first mile is the way of the kingdom of Rome, the second mile is the way of the kingdom of Christ. For the soldier, while the first mile was another mindless, business-as-usual activity, the second mile is a shock to his political, religious, and cultural systems. It forces everything into a humanizing relationship. For him, the choice you made was a moment of potential illumination. The second mile you walked has provided him a longer time of contemplation on the role that he himself is playing. Now you have given him the opportunity to see life differently to wake up from his slumber of role-playing power. You have given him the chance to see you more than a slave, the chance of seeing you as a fellow human being. You have helped him to see himself as more than an oppressor, to see himself as one in need of a new paradigm for perceiving the world. Now, on the surface, enemy love, going the second mile, it might not work. Okay, not in every situation. After all, Jesus loved his enemies and it got him killed. But as followers of Jesus, we don't live life on the surface. We look beyond skin tone and clothing and attitudes and accents and we go to the bones of our building that we call a body and we follow the signature of our creator. Unselfishness, love, it's written on our hearts. We look past the hatred of others to see the great love that God has for every human being. And we look past immediate outcomes in specific situations to see the greater goal of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Carrying the soldier's pack for one mile and then complaining about the unfairness of it all is certainly true and understandable. But that's not being in sync with the Spirit. The Spirit moves us and gives us the strength to go the extra mile. There is an old fable about a rural Chinese farmer who became a Christian. During the growing season, he used a hand worker water wheel to lift water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill to his land. His neighbor had two fields below, and one night the neighbor made a hole in the dividing wall and drained out all of the Christian's water so that it watered his two fields. Now, the Christian was obviously distressed. He laboriously pumped those two fields and then pumped his own field. But this was stealing. It's not right. And so he asked his Christian brother, what shall I do? I'm trying to be patient with my neighbor. How do I confront him? Now, what is the right thing to do in this situation. Well, the Christian brother replied, if we only try to do the right thing, surely we are poor Christians. We have to do something that is more than right. I think that's the second mile. And the Christian farmer was impressed with this advice. And so the next day he went out, first pumped water for the two fields below his, Then after that, worked through the afternoon to fill his own field. And from that day on, the water stayed in his field. The neighbor repatched the hole. And after making inquiries as to what caused him to behave in such a fashion, he too became a follower of Jesus. That's second mile. Are you committed to live in the second mile? To love your neighbor is the first mile. To love your enemy, that's the second. To bless those who bless you is the first mile, to bless those who curse you, that's the second. To do good to those who do good to you is the first mile, to do good to those who hate you is the second mile. Praying for those who pray for you is the first mile, praying for those who despitefully use you, that's the second. How can we be second-milers in our own home, in our own communities, in our own places of work. What does it mean to be in sync with the Spirit? It means living the second mile. It means to rise above this instinctive desire to strike back, to get even, to settle the score, and to meet evil with good. It means to swallow pride and to abandon self-interest. It means to be slow to anger and quick to forgive. It means to live by grace in the face of the unfair. It means to be unselfish. Jesus went much farther than the second mile for you. He went as far as anyone could. Jesus went to the cross for you. And the cross bears the signature of our creator, love, unselfishness. May we live that out in every way. Jesus, we thank you you have called us to go the second mile. God, give us great love and strength to be able to do so. We need you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us for week one of In Sync here at Prodigal Church Fresno. We hope and encourage you to come next week. We can't wait. We hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace in the middle of East.